Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The more polarized things get, the consequences of any policy or action by the government become secondary to did the Democrats or Republicans win by doing this. Maybe a thousand people die, maybe nobody dies, but that doesn't really matter as much as like, did the Democrats win or did the Republicans win? Hello, welcome to the Clown Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network, and happy Thanksgiving. Uh, I hope you guys are all having a wonderful holiday. So we're going to do a re-air today, but it's re-air with particular relevance to what is happening in politics right now and what's certainly going to be happening in my work over the next couple of months. In May of 2018, I interviewed a political scientist named Liliana Mason, who'd written a book called Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity. I think this book is one of the single most important for understanding politics in this era. Uh, Mason's work has been hugely influential in my own work, in my own book. Um, her understanding of how our identities are fusing with each other, becoming what she calls mega identities, I think is genuinely necessary for understanding this era in politics. And I think very, very, very helpful for understanding why the Republican Party is reacting the way it is to impeachment. If you just look at this as a policy question or if you just look at it as an electoral question, you're not going to get there. But if you begin to look at it as an identity question and the way in which their identity group is being threatened, the way in which Donald Trump has come to represent it, then things begin to make a lot more sense and in some ways become a lot scarier. This is also just one of my favorite interviews. Mason is so clear and she's so thoughtful and she's so crisp on what her research shows and what it means for politics that I it's one of the rare ones that I find myself going back to consult the transcript of pretty regularly in my own work. So if you didn't hear it the first time, or even if you did hear it the first time, I think there's a lot of value in this one. As always, my email, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. But here uh, I present or represent Liliana Mason. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So I want to start. You begin with just one of my favorite things that has ever happened in American politics. Tell me about the APSA report of 1950. Wow, that's your favorite thing. That is my favorite thing. <laughs> okay. Because when you when you know about that, it makes everything look so weird. That's true. That's true. So the APSA is the American Political Science Association. And in 1950, they wrote a report called 
toward a more responsible two-party system, which essentially said, we need our parties to look really different from each other, and they don't look different enough right now, and it's dangerous. And so it's not responsible for us to have these two parties that are so indistinguishable from each other that our voters can't get clear cues. So as APSA, we're going to recommend that our parties become visibly different to the voters. So let's talk about, unpack what that means. What does different mean in this context and what would be dangerous about not having different parties? So the good thing about parties is that they have they are like cues for voters. So voters listen to what the parties say. They get they get kind of hints from the parties about which party is closest to them or is kind of more working in their interests. And then they go from there and sort of make their vote based on this relatively simple partisan cue. So what was happening in the 50s is that the parties were pretty mixed up in terms of the social makeup of the two parties. So they were getting mixed cues. Sometimes it seemed like the Democrats were the right party. Sometimes it seemed like the Republicans were the right party. And so the voters themselves didn't have these really simple Give me ways. an example of a mixed cue here. What might be, what, right. what might so be confusing? The, the, the most obvious one is the conservative Southern Democrats. So white Southern Democrats were extremely conservative. There were also Democrats, which meant they were sort of progressive economically, and they were also white. Then there were white Northerners who were not quite as racially conservative, also were relatively economically liberal. And and so they weren't really sure who they should be voting for. And, and in Congress, even the white Southern Democrats often voted with the Republican Party in order to get stuff done because they had a lot of ideological friends in the Republican Party. I feel like this is a bit of a Rosetta Stone because we have this conversation about polarization in the country. The idea that, oh, it's terrible. The parties disagree on everything. They have these very different ideologies. And I think to understand that discussion, it's helpful to understand why you might actually want that to be true. Why there's another moment where the country's most eminent political scientist said, we do not have enough polarization. Because polarization now, I think it mostly acts as a slur in American life. Like polarization just kind of equals bad. So let's say you're a political scientist then and you are worried about this. What problem gets fixed by the parties polarizing? Why why would you think that's a, a good idea? So the idea is that in the 50s, when the parties had mixed cues, people were voting almost sort of randomly, right? It was not clear um, to the electorate what they were supposed to be doing. And so you couldn't really trust the knowledge of the average voter. There was a a 1960s um, report by Philip Converse who looked at the ideological constraint of the American public and basically found that most Americans had no constraint between their issue positions, which means you could hear one issue position from an average person and not be able to predict any of their other issue positions from knowing that one issue position. That's wild. Yeah. At that time, 1964, 2% of the electorate counted as ideological (laughs) by that definition. One of the things I think is interesting here is you'll often hear people lament that America doesn't have a multi-party system. But when I look back on this period, we really did. Now, they were just called two parties. There was Democrats and Republicans. But you had a Southern Democratic Party and a Northern Democratic Party and a Northern Republican Party. And you had all these different, quite distinct coalitions operating within the parties. And what has always struck me as confusing about that, the place where I'm very sympathetic to this 1950 report, is you're a Massachusetts Democrat voting for the Massachusetts Democratic Senate candidate. And you think, oh, great, well, I'm voting in somebody who's going to elect a 
you know, majority leader who's going to make everything more liberal. But then you've got a conservative Southern Democrat in Alabama voting for a conservative Southern Democratic senator who wants to elect a majority leader who's not going to make things liberal. And so one of the ways in which it, it seems to me this is a big deal is that you end up having regions where what they think they're doing when they're voting for a party is actually not being well carried out by what the party is doing, you know, with its members from other regions. Is that reasonable? So the way that I would think about it is it depends on what you mean by liberal at that sure. time. Um, they they were getting their economic issues done relatively well, right? I mean, the Democratic Party was relatively progressive economically during that period of time as it applied to white Americans. Mm -hmm. And so if a Massachusetts Democrat, white Democrat, wanted to vote for progressive economic policy, then they voted for Democrats and they got what they wanted. The problem was that there was no difference between the parties in terms of racial ideology and or ideology about, you know, racial or cultural issues. And so there was no party to vote for. If you actually wanted to vote for for civil rights, there wasn't a party for that. There was no way for you to get that into your vote. It didn't mean anything in the voting booth. And so in a sense, that's kind of why it's it's almost like the polarization we have today is sort of good because uh -huh. at least there's a party you can vote for if you want to get that done. Whereas in the 50s, even if that was your goal, there was nobody to vote for to get that accomplished. And so do you buy the, the argument that it is the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that kicks off this great reordering of American politics and leads to the polarized parties we have today? Partially, yeah. So the the Civil Rights Act started the realignment on racial issues, I think pretty clearly. There were much more clear elite cues. So people all of a sudden started seeing, well, you know, if I vote for Democrats, I'm voting for civil rights. And if I vote for Republicans, I'm not. And so people, that was a pretty powerful cue for a lot of people. And they started sort of using that in exactly the way that the APSA report wanted them to use it. But it kept going beyond that. So that, that I mean, I don't know if you want to talk, talk about I how do. it kept going. But the beginning, I think, was the Civil Rights Act, at least on those issues. All right. And because I think this begins to become a really good lead into to some of the identity theory in the book. Why does it keep going once this process of polarizing parties kicks off? How do we get as far as we are today? So I'm not 100 percent sure. I think some of it is just serendipity. A few decades after the Civil Rights Act, we had the Christian coalition decide to get involved in politics. They courted the Republican Party and the Republican Party courted them. And they kind of, you know, ended up getting their contract with the American family completely uh, within the Republican Party platform by the year 2000. It took, you know, from the 90s or from the mid 80s until the year 2000. But ultimately, all the things that, they, that the, the Christian right wanted ended up in the Republican Party platform. So, so now we have both racial issues dividing parties and religious issues. So that's where I think it starts to really get much more divided. It was already quite divided with racial issues. But but once we start having, you know, one party for white people, one party for non-white people, and then now we have one party for Christian people and one for non-Christian people, that's when I think we start seeing really, really dangerous identity. So now before we, we go into really dangerous identity, I want to back up. Okay. Tell me about fully out of politics. Tell me about the minimal group paradigm. Okay. What is the minimal thing you can do to make people act like they are part of a group? So psychologist named Henri Tajfel, he was a Polish Jew and he fought the Nazis in World War II. 
And he was motivated in his research to figure out what was what was it that made people have conflict, right? Why did people attack outgroup members? Why did people want to kill outgroup members? And he was really interested in trying to figure out, like, what is the most basic division between people we can get where they will discriminate against each other, right? How, how much conflict does there have to be? Let's just start with a baseline and say, okay, we're going to have two completely meaningless groups. There's going to be no conflict between them. They're not going to be competing over anything. They're just going to have different names. And we'll start there. And I assume there will be no discrimination between them at that point. And then we'll add conditions until we get to discrimination. And what he found was at this at this very sort of meaningless group level where in one of the experiments, he had people look at a wall full of dots and estimate how many there were. And some people he told were overestimators and some were underestimators. These experiments were repeated hundreds of times by many other psychologists as well. It doesn't really matter what you call the groups. Uh, every single time without seeing other group members, knowing that you're never going to see other group members, just having found out that you are in a group called, you know, overestimators, people were biased against the outgroup immediately. He didn't have to create any conflict. He didn't have to create competition. He just told people, all right, you're an overestimator. And then all of a sudden they didn't want the underestimators to get as much stuff. But what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> like why? <laughs> so he was surprised. Tashfell was really surprised. He was not expecting it. And what he said in kind of, I quote him often saying this because it, you could almost imagine his face just being like dumbfounded. He writes, it was the winning that seemed more important to them. Like he's just like, it was what? It was the winning. And but the, they weren't even getting anything, right? They got nothing personally. Like, that's so wild. They got nothing personally. And actually he told them even in the allocation task that, that they had to do after they were given the groups, he told them, okay, we're starting over a totally new experiment now. Like this is not related to the first experiment. But the group labels he left on. So the, they actually thought when they were doing the allocation that it was they were supposed to stop the old thing and start completely from scratch. And even then, and, and the, the one experiment that I, I think is the best example of this is that in one of them, he asked, he asked them to choose between a scenario in which these are not the actual numbers. But like, for instance, everybody gets $5 or the overestimators get $4 and the underestimators get 2 and they tended to choose the one where they get less, but they win. So it sets up this scenario where there is a clear greater good, right? Everybody can have $5 and it doesn't hurt anybody. It's the best for everyone. And yet they choose the scenario in which they have to sacrifice in order to beat the other guys. So I want to stop here. I just like everything you have just said is so depressing. <laughs> Yeah. It is so depressing. So now I want to talk about the Eagles and the Rattlers. Okay. Because <laughs> this experiment to me, right, the experiment you just described, it it's so gentle that its effect is comical. This experiment to me is so obvious and intuitive that its results are pretty scary. So tell me a bit about the Eagles and the Rattlers. Okay, so this was, uh, it's called the Robbers Cave Experiment because it was conducted in Robbers Cave State Park in it's a great Oklahoma. great an experiment. I know. <laughs> There's no apostrophe, by the way. It's just robbers. Oh, really? Yeah, it's huh. just robbers. Just a lot of robbers. Just a lot of robbers. It's not their cave. No, there's just a cave with robbers. <laughs> <laughs> robbers is a descriptive maybe, maybe term. Maybe it's Mike Robbers. <laughs> maybe. Oh, no, then it would have an apostrophe. That's right, unless yeah, yeah. it's robbers with an S. No, that would have an apostrophe, yeah. Well, it could yeah. just be named after him. Yeah. 
right? He was it's the one the who discovered it. He doesn't own it, but but it's just it's associated with him. Robert. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. So okay. Robert's so, Cave. So Robert's Cave. This was in 1954. Some social psychologists, they recruited 24 fifth grade boys from the Oklahoma City area. They recruited them intentionally so that they were as similar to each other socially and psychologically as possible. So they're all white, Protestant, fifth grade. They had they were matched on in terms of um, classroom, uh, you know, behavior, academic ability, family structure, everything they could possibly control for. They found 24 boys that were as similar as possible. And then they invited them to go to a summer camp in Robbers Cave State Park. So they they initially broke them up into two groups, the, the Eagles and the Rattlers. Um, they actually didn't call them that. The boys came up with those names on their own. The first week, the boys did not, did not know that there was another camp site. They thought it was just 12 boys, and that was it. And they got to know each other, and they gave themselves names, and they, had, they became friends. And then the uh, second week, they were told that there were boys down the road. And they immediately wanted to start competing against those boys. The first thing they wanted to do was to like, have, let's have a baseball let's game. Let's have a something. baseball game. Yeah. yeah. They also immediately started calling them derogatory names. Really? Like dirty shirts, pigs. They called them just nasty names. With They never met them. They had no idea who they were. They just called them bad names. Human beings are great. Yeah. Yeah. Fifth grade boys in particular. <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd like to think this is only fifth grade boys. No, it's not. On. It's not. It's not. <laughs> So then they had a week of, of competition. Seventh grade. Whew. Yeah. I think of like in my own experience, fifth grade people are great They're compared way better. to junior high schoolers. That's true. Yeah, that was middle school's the worst. Bad times. It's a good thing that they didn't do this with middle schoolers, actually. <laughs> Nobody might, would have survived. Might have caused lasting psychological <laughs> damage, actually. Anyway. Uh, so the fifth grade boys, they spent the second week competing. The only thing they were competing over was a trophy. They knew there was one trophy and one team was going to get it at the end of camp. And they played baseball. They did. They mixed up the things they had to do so that they could each. The, the experimenters were actually manipulating the scores to keep it as even as possible throughout that week. So they did puzzles. They did um, like arts and crafts games. So they they really mixed up the kinds of competitions so that the boys didn't really know who was winning at any given time. And they were constantly told it's really close. And then uh, they, while they were having these competitions, they started. Uh, conspiracy theorizing about each other to some degree. Um, they uh, they attacked each other's camps. They uh, One team said that the other team had probably come to their, attacked their camp and, and dumped ice cubes in their, in their swimming hole because one boy stubbed his toe and another boy thought it was colder than the day before. That was not true. Nothing had happened. Uh, another, uh, the other team at one point found some garbage on their campsite, forgetting that they had left it there the day before. They blamed the other boys. Um, and then it escalated really badly where they started throwing rocks at each other and attacking each other and physically hurting each other to the point where the camp counselors had to separate them. So what we're getting at here is that the tendency to sort by group and to really associate with your group and to have a very hostile tendency towards the outgroup can be activated by virtually nothing and does not require there to be any stakes of any consequence. No. I mean, in the, in the case of the Rattlers and Eagles, there was a trophy. There was. But, but that's what I'm saying, that, that then when you imagine pasting this on, not to were you called an overestimator or an underestimator— or is there a trophy? And to be fair to trophies, I mean, there's a huge amount of life is about getting trophies. Yeah, trophies are fun. Um, trophies are great. But when you're talking now about abortion or healthcare or whether or not we're going to go to war in Iraq, the stakes really are high. 
groups really do matter. And so what happens when you layer literally life or death consequences on top of the human innate tendency to love its own group and loathe the outgroup? It's still the winning that's the most important to them. So what ends up happening is that the actual life and death consequences become secondary. The more polarized things get, the consequences of any policy or action by the government become secondary to did the Democrats or Republicans win by doing this. So maybe a thousand people die, maybe nobody dies, but that doesn't really matter as much as like, did the Democrats win or did the Republicans win? How do you know that? Give me, talk me through some of the evidence that it's more about winning for people than it is about the thing that they're winning. Because I think if you ask people to give an account of why they care, they'll say, well, I care because this is so important to me. So what makes you confident that that account of their reasoning is correct? So there's two things. The first is just some data from Pew. This was actually from 2013. It was was after Sandy Hook. And they asked people, would they, you know, how many people approved of background checks for purchasing guns? And it was something like 86% of Republicans approved of background checks. And then they asked, and same people, they asked, would they approve of the Senate passing a bill to enact background checks? And then only 56% of people agreed with that. So 30% more people wanted the actual thing to happen than actually wanted a government to do something about it. Because if they had passed a background check bill, that would have been seen as a win for Democrats. And they didn't want that to happen. The other thing that I would say is that the one of my favorite experiments that's ever been done is uh, by Jeffrey Cohen, and it's called Party Over Policy. He gave people two welfare, possible welfare policies. One was really stringent and one was really generous. And then he, he randomly assigned them to Democrats like A and the Republicans like B or vice versa. And people, regardless of the policy that they should have liked based on their ideological preferences, they just chose the one that matched their, that they were told matched their party. And he, he tried this in like, like five different ways and gave them more and more information every time and kind of allowed them to calculate, you know, is this one better for people? Or, and, and no matter how much information he gave them, they kept choosing the one that matched their party only because they had been told this information at the beginning of the experiment. They hadn't thought it through. And then at the end, he asked them to write an op-ed piece and send it to the newspaper. And he tells them, this is actually going to change things. Like you could actually affect legislation with this op-ed piece that you write. So write write down what you think the government should do and write the reasons why they should do it. And people wrote op-ed pieces supporting their party's policy with like five points, different reasons. They come up with reasons. They hadn't agreed with the policy when they walked in the door to the experiment. And they, off the top of their head, come up with a bunch of arguments to support a policy that they otherwise wouldn't have supported. And knowing that this is probably going to make legislation change. So this, there's something John Haidt, the psychologist, says that I like here, where he says that the, the human mind, we like to imagine that is a truth-seeking machine, but it's a press secretary. Right. But the press secretary never goes out and says, you know what, maybe the White House, maybe we're actually wrong on this one. We're, that was a good point you just made, questioner or other person or whomever. The press secretary just figures out how to make an argument for the thing that the boss supports. And that more often than not, that is true for us, too, that that our minds are powerful justification machines and that we instantly, often subconsciously know that we need to get to the position, decide we're going to get to the position that our group is at. 
And then what this thing we do that feels like thinking, it's actually just rationalizing our way there. Is that basically your view? Yeah, it's even worse than that, though. We're, we're oh, not good. just... <laughs> I, was hope, I was hoping it was worse than that. <laughs> we're not just rationalizing the position. We're constructing it in a way that matches what we want it to be or what we think it should be. And the people who know the most about politics do it the most. That's... I, I really... This, to me, is really scary. And one of the one of the sort of seminal studies of motivated reasoning, which is what this is, is what this is called by political psychologists, actually demonstrates that when you tell relatively politically sophisticated people to read an article that they disagree with, they take longer to read it than they take to read an article they agree with, first of all. And they also take longer to read it than someone who doesn't have as much political information as they do. Because what they're doing that whole time that they're reading it is coming up with counter arguments for every sentence that they read. And at the end of it, their opinion is not changed. Some people who have less political knowledge will read it much more quickly, and they'll actually kind of change their opinion sometimes. But the more politically sophisticated you are, the better you are at constructing the world the way you want it to look. So one of the things that this tells me is that the intuitive fix people have for this, I, I get this a lot when I give speeches or, or talk to people. People say, well, you know, shouldn't we all just make sure to vary our media diet more, right? Make sure we're hearing from the other side. And on the one hand, yes, you should do that. You should be making sure you're hearing from a diversity of opinions. But the model of the mind, wherein that is going to make you more open-minded, is often wrong. Often hearing opinions you don't like entrenches your position because the way your 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 mind reacts to it is to come up with the counter-arguments, undermine the evidence, and you read that and you're like, man, these people really are stupid. So the idea is just a, a question of exposure versus cocooning. That would be nice, but it doesn't turn out to be all that true. That's my understanding of the, the situation. Yeah, yeah, I think that's correct. I mean, just imagine when you watch a president of your party giving a State of the Union address versus the president of the other party giving a State of the Union address and the different way that your brain is working when you're watching those two different presidents. Frances Lee, who's uh, also a my Maryland, colleague, yeah, who's great, she tells a story of being, and I hope I get this right because it's been a long time since she told it to me, but that she was on a fellowship working in Congress during, I think it was in 2004. And she, I forget where she was, but this was the year that George W. Bush came out and said, I'm going to make it a goal that America is going to land on Mars, right? We're going to go to Mars as a country. And Democrats, Mars was not a politically controversial position. Democrats did not have a position on whether or not you're going to go to Mars. But very quickly, Democrats are like, that's ridiculous. We have big deficits. Now, there's no doubt that if Barack Obama or Bill Clinton came out and said, you know, we're going we're gonna to keep going where John F. Kennedy began and we're going to go to Mars, Democrats would have been on their feet applauding. And it's not like the position that let's not spend the money on going to Mars, let's worry about the deficit and build build schools. That's not a crazy position. It's just instrumentally downstream from why they're adopting it. Not only that, you'd think Democrats would approve of funding NASA and, right? I mean, those it, it actually disagrees with a lot of the principles that they would be predicted so, to have. And this, this goes then to, to, to Lee's work, which I think about a lot because I see it all the time in my reporting. I don't know that I've ever covered... With the exception of maybe abortion, I don't know that I've ever covered a policy topic where at the beginning of it, you can't get experts from both sides in a room. And it's very easy for them to imagine a solution that they both like better. Policy is often positive sum. 
you can put me with a healthcare person who disagrees with me, and we can come up with something usually that we both like better than what we've got. But as the legislative process wears on, as the coverage wears on, as everybody learns more about it, by the end, it becomes a political question. And politics is zero-sum. Only one side wins and only one side loses. If you pass the bill and Barack Obama gets to run around the country saying the Affordable Care Act was a bipartisan bill that everybody really liked, well, then Democrats are going to get more seats in the next election and Republicans might lose seats and Republicans will lose their jobs. And I mean, we have not set up a system where the incentives are towards cooperation even though we set one up where, where you need cooperation. And it's that twist from, is there something better we can do to who's going to win this fight with whatever attendant rewards, if there are any that that brings, where politics to me becomes impassable. It's no longer about ideas. It's no longer coming up with some clever compromise. It's just a, you just can't because not everybody can win. Yeah, I mean, so there's a couple of things. One is that the, you know, part of this is that the, you know, the media tend to cover even legislation at this point as horse race. And that's because it, it's what people want to hear, right? I mean, it's it's an attractive way to present a relatively boring policy debate, right? It's who's going to win. Policy debate is never boring. <laughs> so generally, to get somebody to listen, right, you don't say, all right, these are the 10 different things that the Affordable Care Act is going to do. And, you know, you might like two of them and dislike three of them, and maybe you don't understand the other. But instead, it's like, this is Obamacare, and Obama wins if he gets this, and that's it. And that cha- that makes it much more easy to understand. It makes it a lot more fun to watch, and it makes it a lot more fun to follow. And so we end up framing things, you know, whereas we used to frame elections as zero-sum, because they are. But now we frame legislation as zero-sum, and that's, I think, where the damage gets done. But so implicit in this discussion— is, oh, stupid humans with your dumb lizard brains, that, that that this isn't right, that the way we're thinking about this, it, it's not correct. It would be better if we were compromising. And yet one of the, the things that I find to be a tough challenge in this debate, and it goes back to that, you know, real original APSA report, is when the stakes are high, whether or not the stakes are what are really motivating behavior, and, and, and we should talk more about that, uh, and we touched on it earlier, when the stakes are high, Maybe it's rational to act like this. So the the famous example of this is Mitch McConnell coming out and saying, as if he were like like an evil villain stroking a cat, our top priority is to make Barack Obama one-term president. And on the one hand, you're like, you don't say that. But on the other hand, if you're Mitch McConnell and you're a Republican and you believe Republican rule is better for the country and that the Republican agenda is great and Barack Obama's agenda is bad— I mean, I think if you ask a lot of Democrats right now, what's your top priority? It's making Donald Trump a one-term president. And I don't think that's crazy if you disagree with Donald Trump. And so one thing that I find hard in this is that the comfortable position in many ways is to float above it all and say, oh, these polarized political actors, they're bad. I'm going to be, I'm going to try to be enlightened. (laughs) But are they bad? Or is this just actually how politics is meant to work, particularly when the stakes really are high and the governing agendas really are different. Yeah. So there's uh, there's the there's the argument that this is not bad. Right. Or that it is it is bad in a way that maybe is productive. Um, And that's that's sort of the argument that, you know, if the Civil War hadn't happened, large portions of our population would not be better off right now. And the fact that we have a party that is actually looking out for the rights of people that have not had anybody looking out for their rights in a long time 
that's a good thing. And so there is an argument to be made that th- these are important policy goals. And the fact that we're fighting so hard about them maybe just means they're even that more important. The problem with it happens when, and it, it, I kind of don't know the way around it, because I'm not going to say we should have another civil war. That would be a hot take, though. That would, yeah, it certainly would. But, you know, the other side of it is to say, but nothing is getting done. And not only that, when we don't get anything done, it hurts people. It hurts everybody to some extent. Um, or really, it hurts the most vulnerable people because they're the ones who need government help the most. And and so there has to be some middle ground between, you know, having these really vicious fights that maybe we need to have and actually having a government that functions. So I want to put a pin in solutions or, or what would be a good equilibrium here, because I, I do want to come to that, but I don't want to come to it yet. We've talked so far about identities based on almost nothing. We've talked about identities based on politics. What your book tracks is a construction of what you call mega identities, which is awful because I want to write a book about this and had very related terms I wanted to use. But but it's your term. It's mega identities, which is better than what I thought of. So tell me about mega identities and how they change the analysis here, because this feels like the the the, the key of what is changing. Right. So we already talked about what one identity can do. The problem right now is that because we've had, you know, after the Civil Rights Act and after the sort of Christian coalition working together with Republicans throughout the you know, 80s and 90s, we're at a point where we have one party, the Republicans, who are consistently white and Christian and conservative. And then the other party, the Democrats, who are consistently non-white and non-Christian and liberal. Social psychologists have found when you have multiple social identities, you know, we've studied the effect of one but not a lot of people had studied the effect of two, right? Which is ridiculous because we all have like hundreds of them and they're constantly at work in our in our psyche all the time. And some of them become more salient sometimes and other times that they're, they're not salient. Generally, the ones that are threatened are the ones that are most salient. So that's something to pay attention to. But actually, they work together. And Marilyn Brewer is the social psychologist who studied this the most. What she's found is that if... You have two identities that are largely overlapping, which basically means most of the people in one group are also in the other group. Then it's a lot harder to see outsiders with tolerance, right? You, co- you become more intolerant people who are not you. And that's partially because, you know, the one of the examples that she used was Irish Catholic, right? If you're Irish and you're Catholic, then you probably don't know a whole lot of non-Irish, non-Catholic people. But if you're Irish and you're Jewish— you probably know a bunch of non-Irish and non-Jewish people, right? Because your two circles are not that overlapping. And so you're exposed to people who are not in at least one of your groups relatively often. Mm-hmm. And that allows you to feel tolerance towards them. It gives them humanity. Uh, you you give them the, be- the benefit of the doubt. You think about them as thoughtful, normal people, kind of like you. But if you never meet those people who are outside of at least one of your groups, then it's a lot easier to dehumanize your outgroups. It's a lot harder to think of them as human beings who have thought processes. It's just they're they're not they're not as accessible. So there's a visual metaphor I've been thinking about with this reading your book that I, I wanted to run by you. So if you think about our identities as you know like a like a weight, you know, an anchor or, or, or a weight you're holding, if they're all over the place, you know, if you're sort of just tied to things that are all over the place, it's pretty easy to move around. If they're all in one place, you can't go anywhere. 
you're there. You got to be that person. You got to have those ideas, right? You can only be with other people who are also anchored to that same place. And so if you're a, if you're a Democrat, but you're a conservative Christian and you live in a rural area and, you know, you kind of go down this list, you know, maybe you lean towards the Democratic Party, but you're probably not that afraid of the other party. Whereas if you're a Democrat and you're African-American and you live in an urban center and you're an atheist and, you know, you like the culture of the Democrat, you know, I mean, you go down the list. Shop the other party, you shop at Whole Foods. The other party really is so demographically different from you. And there's so much tying you to your side, which is true for a lot of us, right? I'm, when I, when I'm using this hypothetical, but it's obviously, you know, true for someone like me. It becomes really hard to move. It becomes really hard to drag all that to somewhere else because there's just too much of yourself at stake. And it feels to me that a lot of us are in that position now, that so much of us can be threatened at any given moment. So many parts of ourselves, so many of the things we care about and like and ways we self-identify, that the idea that you're going to change your mind or give the other party a chance or vote cross-ticket, which people used to do all the time. I mean, cross-ticket voting was totally normal 50 years ago, and it's pretty abnormal now at the national level. It was just easier. Is that how this works in your head or my? I... Yeah, I th- so I don't think about it as weights. I get, I get that metaphor. The way that I tend to think about it is um, one of the things that Tajfel said when he was trying to figure all this out was that the reason that this happens is because our group becomes part of our self-image. And the status of our group affects how we feel our status, right? Individual status. So if our group is losing, and we know this from like sports teams, we feel really bad. As an individual, we feel bad. And if our group wins, then as an individual, we feel really good. And so to some extent, each group membership is a portion of your own self-esteem. So the way that I think about it is the more groups that are involved in every competition, the more self-esteem real estate is kind of being taken up by every election, right? Each election becomes not just, you know, well, the Democrats lost, so what a bummer, you know, because because my party lost. Instead, it's like, well, my party lost, so that means my racial group and my religious group and my cultural group and all the people that I know and all the people that I watch on TV, everything that I know, everything that makes up who I think I am, it's all gone. I lost it all. I have nothing left inside of my sense of who I am. And so there's this, if you, I imagine a self-esteem as just, you know, this large object and sort of the more things that get involved in each election, the more vulnerable our self-esteem is. So we're talking currently about the internal version of it, how we feel about ourselves. There's also the question of of how we feel about, you know, and I, I use this word with a capital T, the them. I thought the absolute scariest line in your book Uh, in the whole book, was you wrote, people's brains respond similarly when people are sad and when they're observing a sad in-group member. But when they're observing a sad out-group member, their brains respond by activating areas of positive emotion. That seems really bad. Like that we just have a schadenfreude (laughs) section of of the brain. Yeah, there's a part of your brain for schadenfreude. Like how confident are you in that research? Because I, I, I was trying to think about that. And I guess it might depend on like this what outgroup means because I can imagine outgroups. I mean, 
when I'm watching a movie and the Nazis lose, I'm like, I'm cool with that. The part of my brain that deals with pleasure does does light up. But I see lots of people who I don't see in my group and I hear about their suffering and I don't feel good about it. So on the one hand, that scared me. And on the other hand, it did not intuitively feel like it. I mean, are we truly that base? No, so it, it wouldn't work with every single outgroup. And I think one of the things, I think you just explained it really well, which is if if it's an outgroup member that you are in competition with and you really dislike and is dangerous to you, then their suffering will bring you joy. If it's an outgroup member that you don't feel like you're in particular competition with and, and you know, the themness of their group is not very salient to you, right? Like, you know, if you see someone from India and, and that's supposed to activate your American identity, right? And you just don't have a very strong American identity, then that outgroup member is not that, isn't going to affect your brain all that much. It only really affects your brain if you're looking at somebody who activates a powerful identity for you and if that group is in competition with you in some way. So it wouldn't always happen. Um, often, it, I mean, it will happen with party identity. We know that party identity is a relatively strong social identity, at least now. And we know that racial identity is a really strong identity for some people. And so some of these studies that they did were, you know, the neurobiology tolerance studies were, and this is not my area of expertise, just to clarify, but, you know, they they did one that I talk about in the book where they prick someone's hand. They show a video of pricking someone's hand. And if the hand is the same race as you, then your hand twitches when you see it. And if the hand is not the same race as you, then your hand doesn't twitch or it's less frequent to see someone's oh. hand twitch if it's a different, if it's a person of a different race who's being hurt. And they, you know, they found this enough to find significant results. doesn't mean it happened to everybody, but it's enough that they found significant results. I mean, I, I do think you see this at least in core politics quite a bit. So there has been a lot of attention this year to state legislature special elections. And I see people tuning into them. And I recognize that on some level, people are tuning in because they're interested in whether or not it's a portent, right? Whether or not Democrats winning an unexpected state legislature election in Georgia means Democrats are going to take back the House, and that means Donald Trump is going to get investigated and we're going to see his tax. You know, I, I can run out the, the sample on that. But also it does seem to me that people are tuning in and they're just, they want to see their side win and the other side lose. And it implies to me that, and you, and you talk about this dimension of his rhetoric, that when Donald Trump really focuses on winning as the core concept of politics, that as much as it does sound childish and strange, he is on, as he, is, as he often is, to something very visceral and gut level in us that works. He just talks about it in an unusually crude way. Yeah. And but there's something also to the crudeness. So first of all, you know, the fact that these identities are linked to our own self-esteem means that if you're not feeling particularly good about yourself and someone tells you that your group can win, that will pull you out of a bad place. So for the people he was talking to, right, this, the, you know, I don't really buy the economic anxiety argument, but for people who aren't feeling like they're doing very well, if your group does well, then you feel a little bit better, even if it doesn't help you at all in any real way. And so... So first of all, there's there's that. And I do think that using that winning and losing language was a large part of his success. 
The other part of it was that not only did he say, you know, you're losing, which is a relatively rare thing for a politician to say, Mm -hmm. right? We're losers is not a popular campaign slogan, but he said it a lot. We're losers and we're losing. And calling that out is risky, except that if you tell people they're losing and then you tell them whose fault it is, then you get their attention and you turn essentially what the, you know, there's emotions research that shows if someone feels like they're losing and they don't know why, they feel afraid and humiliated. And those are emotions that make you sit down and hide. But if you feel like you're losing and you know exactly whose fault it is, it makes you angry and you get up and you fight. And so what Trump was able to do was to take a whole bunch of people who were feeling humiliated and afraid and give them a target, which was an insane target, right? He, the Mexicans, right? That's not the reason that these people are suffering. But he, he pointed to a real target and said, that's it. That's the reason. Now go out and get them. And that's an extremely motivating, from a psychological viewpoint, it's an extremely motivating message. And when people heard that, you know, it wasn't just you can win. It was, I'm going to show you how to be victorious against an enemy. And that's important. That was an important ingredient. So let's say you're listening to this and you're thinking, I don't want to be one of these people. I don't want to be, I don't want to work this way. What do you do? I'm not sure you, the type of person who would say, I don't want to work this way is less vulnerable to that message to begin with. Well, maybe to Donald Trump's exact message. Yeah. But to the broad idea of this identity protective cognition, as as Dan Kahan puts it, what do you do? What do you do to be a little bit more of an individual and a little bit less of a group member? So there are social psychology has gone through a whole bunch of things trying to reduce intergroup conflict in, in terms of like ethnic and racial conflict for decades. We can use some of that to apply it to partisanship, which uh, you know, maybe it'll work and maybe it won't. But one of the things that seems to work really well for, at the very least, implicit bias, implicit racial bias, is to constantly, because it's implicit, right? You can't just tell yourself, like, turn that off, right? It's not going to turn off. But you can train yourself over time and sort of strengthen a muscle in your brain to say, this is not what I should be doing. This is wrong. And I'm going to, I know I can't turn it off, but I can at the very least notice it every time I do it. So, um, you know, the example is if you're, you know, if you have implicit racial bias, every time you see a racial outgroup member, whatever your first thought about them is, just look at it. Not even, not even try to change it. Just look at it and see what that is. What do you assume about that person the second that you see them? And the same could be said for political opponents, right? The second that you hear somebody is a Democrat or is a Republican, look at what that means to you and pay attention to it. And think about whether that's fair. And and for at least for reducing racial bias, one thing that once you start looking at it, then you start counter arguing, right? You say, how about a completely counter stereotypical image? I'm going to see that guy. I had originally assumed that that this guy in the MAGA hat is, you know, a rural farmer, but I'm going to pretend in my mind that he's a college professor. And does that work? You have to practice. You have to practice. And also that type of thing really only works for people who are not in danger, right? So I wouldn't recommend that, for instance, you know, racial minorities do that with Trump supporters necessarily. It's difficult to ask someone who may feel in danger to try to be tolerant. And so I'm not ready to do that. 
When, when you look at the underlying forces here, something that I see in the way your book argues it is the construction of a flywheel happening. So you go back into the 20th century and you have these two parties. So, you know, there is some differentiation, but there's a lot of blockage around race. The media is not that national at that point. There are, you know, people are mixed in where they live. We've not gone through what Bill Bishop calls a big sort yet. And so it isn't that easy to construct these super identities. Then things begin to come into alignment. So you have race stops blocking conservatives from becoming Republicans and liberals from becoming Democrats. And then once you've, you've become, you start having a national media and now rather than just be a liberal or democratic channel or conservative channel, you can be against Republicans and conservatives or against Democrats and liberals. So that makes that easier. And, and you begin to stack these things. You, you know, we begin to sort where we live. As you say, religion and race both become much more sorted. Does this stop? Is there any reason to think that the forces that seem to be accelerating polarization, where polarization begets more polarization, do they stop? Is there some reason to think something interrupts them? Or is this a one-way ratchet? I don't think it's one way. It might be. I've been wrong, I've been wrong before about things. Um, to me, politics happens in cycles. And really, the only thing that needs to happen for this to to stop is for there to be a new rift somewhere. So either one of the parties has, you know, some internal rift or the demographic changes that are happening in America are absolutely threatening to a lot of people and it's making them sort of dig down into their positions. But eventually the party of white Christian conservative men is not an electoral coalition anymore. So at some point, that's, you know, something has got to have to change. In 2012, the Republican Party had an autopsy and they were ready to start reaching out to Latino voters and participate in the new American demographic population, right? So that wasn't well, very long ago. They weren't really ready for that, but... But if they had lost 2016, maybe they would have. Maybe, yeah. Someone was saying this to me the other day is winning parties don't change, right, ever. <laughs> but to the extent that a particular message or particular strategy stops working eventually, somewhere something has to change. That's the only way that I see us getting out of it. Otherwise, we end up with really a very, you know, shrinking portion of our population fighting against a large and growing portion of our population. And how does that continue? That's not sustainable, right? It's not 50-50. Yeah, although... It can sustain for a long time. One thing that I, I think about politics is that people who are kind of professionally wonky on, on, on policy, on elections, on political science or whatever, they always underestimate how much something can't be sustained. It is such a, a trope of coverage to say, well, this can't keep going on, right? You know, they're not going to let healthcare prices get that high. We got to do something before that happens. And then like 15 years later, you're like, actually, we, we just did. I just, I think that things can get a lot worse than we often give them credit for. That, that sometimes it's just a lack of tragic imagination. I mean, societies go into long-term decline. I look at Japan, right? I could really imagine being in Japan however many years ago and saying, look at these demographics. There's no way we're not going to figure out something either around birth rates or immigration. Like, no way. Like, it's not, we're not going to have, you know, so many old people that we begin selling more adult diapers than infant diapers. Like, that would be crazy. But here we are. <laughs> and I, 
you know, and then obviously things can get much, much worse. You can have civil wars. And, you know, I had Amy Chu on this podcast, and one of her arguments is that as dominant groups lose power, they become much more threatened, much more intensely tribal, much more dangerous in some ways, uh, which I think you see with Trump, actually, you know, the move towards a more extreme version of white identity politics than we've seen in, in quite some time in this country. And I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm just saying that it also seems just as possible that it doesn't happen and that this is not a problem. American politics has machinery to solve. And it doesn't mean the country breaks apart or falls into violence, but it might mean the country just cannot govern itself well for a very extended period of time and that things just do kind of get worse. Yeah. So, I mean, the way that I think about it is we are almost two years into this. It is, you know, we're still at a point where not enough has happened yet for us to know whether this is a survivable crisis that we're going to look back on and wipe our brows and be like, whoo, that was that was rough. But everything it's going to go back to normal somehow or whether it just descends. Right. One argument for your position that we keep descending is that most of the professional people that I know are having a really hard time imagining the next president. What happens? Who is the next president? And how do we get out of this? How does that person get us out of this? What happens to the militias? What happens to the Trump supporters? What happens to Trump himself and his messaging and his divisiveness? You know, he's not going anywhere necessarily when the next president comes along. So... And most people can't, most people that I've spoken to can't imagine it. It's so strange. They can't imagine who it will be and how it will work. And they can't imagine just Trump continuing (laughs) and being frightening and, you know, breaking norms. That's interesting. I mean, can you imagine? Totally. I can. The next president? Yeah, absolutely. So do the institutions heal in your imagination? I'm not sure they're that broken. I have a weird view on this. I'll be honest. I think things are pretty bad, but I also think they've been really bad in a lot of ways for a very long time. And that the ways in which Trump is bad are very easily accessible to the human mind. Donald Trump is, his behavior is alarming in the way that if your partner was behaving this way, your boss, your employee, your friend, your kid, you'd be really freaked out, right? You'd be really concerned. And so on a human level, I think you look at Trump and he and his tweets and the things he says and his level of, of recklessness and confrontation and like everything in you screams like, this is not okay. If you're not sympathetic to Donald Trump, right? Like obviously some people look and say, this is great. This is exactly what I want in a president. But that's not obviously my view. That said, I think about the 20th century, which, you know, when you talk to political scientists is kind of this golden age of American politics and we weren't that polarized. I mean, you think about 1950 and 1960 and and, and what's happening? John F. Kennedy is assassinated. RFK is assassinated. Martin Luther King is assassinated. Malcolm X is assassinated. Harvey Milk is assassinated. Squeaky Fromm's gun doesn't go off. So Gerald Ford doesn't get assassinated, but definitely would have otherwise. Ronald Reagan gets shot through a rib and a lung punctures. You have urban riots. You have the Kent State shootings. We seem to me at other points in American history that are recent to be much worse. And so, you know, when I look at Trump, and I don't know, I don't think it's impossible he wins a second term by any means. 
But the idea that he will just be replaced by some totally banal president seems very high to me. And then we will be in the place we were in under late Bush and all of Obama, which is, you know, back then I was having conversations about how screwed up Congress is and how our political system is paralyzed. But people didn't think it was existential in the way they do now. And I think we're going to go back. I think we're going to snap back to that quicker than other people do. Um, That is my view. It may very well be wrong, but I'm just not persuaded that the damage Trump is doing to the system, that what he represents is as systemic or replicable as people think. Um, I do think we have real challenges and I don't think we are going to govern well, but I think we've not been governing that well for a pretty long time now. And I I think we're going to muddle. Well, so this is so this is the other alternative theory is that, that you know, possibly the, this this era is just kind of because we're only a couple of years into it. Maybe it's relatively brief and we're lancing the boil. Right. The fact that we had these racial identities align, racial and religious identities align with our part, partisan identities actually is a is a big threat to sort of the traditional social hierarchy of our society. And that caused this mass freak out. And Ultimately, after Trump is done, right, we will know we are this is our fight. We're having a the the cleavage between our parties is a social justice cleavage. That's mm-hmm. what it is. And it took this to get us to to admit that that's what the that's what the new partisan cleavage is. And then our parties fight along that line. Our party divisions have always been moving, right? Sometimes we fight over economics, sometimes we fight over culture, so you know, but the line keeps moving. And so my version of the optimistic story is that this might be like the 60s if we didn't have a party that was actually representing social justice right now, right? Part of what happened in the 60s was that the populace was fighting for social justice and there was no organized place to put it. And it turned into absolute chaos. And right now, sort of what we're doing is putting it in an organized place in the Democratic Party. Oh, I think that's so interesting. So you've just given me language for something I've been struggling with. So this is, I'm trying to decide even whether I talk about this because by the time this podcast comes out, it'll be like ancient history. But I'm in this dispute with Sam Harris right now, who's like a kind of new atheist and podcaster and whatever. I'm not, I've said plenty on the dispute by this point. But what I have thought is really interesting about it is over around him, you're seeing a connection between people, a, an identity form that is to me a social justice cleavage. And it, it can be confusing, I think, the first time you look at it because you think, well, what, why are Sam Harris and Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson and, you know, this community of people so comfortable with each other when, you know, probably on a lot of banal political issues, Sam Harris and I are much closer than he is to Ben Shapiro, maybe. But on the social justice cleavage, we're on totally different sides of it. And it really seems to me that at least in spaces of online political argumentation, um, and I don't just mean people doing it professionally, I mean just people doing it. I think if you look around YouTube comments or whatever it might be, I think that cleavage of are you comfortable with these pushes for social justice? Do you think the bigger problem is political correctness on campus or the things that politically correct activists on campus are trying to fight? I think that cleavage is becoming really dominant. I actually don't think it's that well mapped onto politics yet. I don't think it, I mean, it is somewhat reflected in the Republican and Democratic parties, but you have people who mix it up there. 
But it does feel to me that that is one of the really interesting cross-cutting cleavages right now where you have people who traditionally thought of themselves as, I don't mean classical liberals, political liberals, but are becoming much more comfortable on the right because of the social justice cleavage, and in some cases, vice versa. Uh, I think if you look at a Bill Kristol uh, or someone like that, you're seeing the opposite. You're seeing people who look at someone like Donald Trump and think they can't even like the tax plan because the cultural regressiveness is so offensive that it just makes the entire package toxic. Yeah. And even if you, I mean, I, I was at a, like a, a mini conference on the truth at American University yesterday, and we were talking about this. Did, uh, did you guys figure it out? No. <laughs> close. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, one of the things that sort of occurred to me as I was having, I was in the middle of a conversation was that one of the kind of really damaging forces of the 2016 election was this, we're calling it anti-establishment sentiment. To some degree, it was nihilism, right? It was just like people who wanted to burn down the building and start over. And it sort of just, you know, it involved trolls and it involved maybe Russia, right? It was just like, let's just destroy everything. But all of a sudden it occurred to me that the the thing that kind of all of the online nastiness has in common is that it all kind of started with anti-PC rhetoric. And it's like there was something that needed to be resisted in our, you know, in, in this increasing level of, of concern for social justice and and making sure that people are treated equally and kindly and fairly. And, you know, social justice warrior is a bad word in, in many corners of the Internet. And I, I think ultimately the people who coined that as a bad word are going to wish they chose a different terminology. Perhaps, yeah, it's really, like usually when it's you do that, yeah, yeah, usually when you do that, you pick something more pejorative than yeah. this asshole trying to make <laughs> our society justice. more just. Yeah. I just I, I think there's a branding problem here. Yeah. I think that's true. I'd be, if I were doing that, I would maybe think about trying to call these people something worse. Switch back to Snowflake. Yeah, yeah Snowflake. Yeah. Oh, uh. man, Snowflake. <laughs> the people who want to call everybody Snowflake are the same people who get so triggered by somebody saying happy holidays to them. It's the funniest thing in the world to me. Yeah. Snowflake. Ability to melt is not really the exact <laughs> Yeah, it, <laughs> the exact it, it, doesn't, it doesn't cut the 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 parties all that all that tightly. Anyway, no. but... But so my, my point is actually that, you know, it is, it is completely possible that what we're seeing come out now is not just total chaos and meanness and, you know, just this like nasty culture that hates all organization and deplorable, you know, whatever we're saying this is, there could be a real new partisan cleavage that we're actually trying to organize around oh. and get figured out. And if it gets figured out, that's not necessarily a bad thing. When you're talking about a new rift, I think a version of this you might have expected and a version of this people wrote about is Donald Trump represents the beginning of a new rift in the Republican Party. He's going to arise. You're going to have these never-Trumpers flee the Republican Party. You're going to have a new cleavage. I mean, you really did. You had all these pieces about the Republican Civil War, and and, and it was a very common theory. I saw respected political scientists talking about it. it. I put it in my book. There I mean, you go. It's... It turns out basically nobody left the Republican Party. No, it it's wrong. like Bill Kristol and Jennifer Rubin, and that's it. <laughs> Not literally it, yeah. but, you know, it's like 25 people. and. Instead, it's just absorbed, either it's absorbed Trumpism or Trumpism is absorbed it or they have come to an accommodation. But rather than creating a new cleavage, it's just literally the same cleavage on a macro political level. Now, more micro, I do think you have exactly what you're talking about. It, it does feel to me like we're trying to find an expression for a new, for a new cleavage. And 
people almost don't quite yet know how to explain why they're comfortable with the people they're comfortable with, as opposed to the people ideologically you would have thought they'd be comfortable with. But, but why isn't it happening? Why politically has Trump had so little effect on the partisan structure of America? I mean, you could argue that it is happening to some extent, not in people changing the way that they're being partisan, but in the way that people are just quitting, right? There are a lot of people that are quitting being part of either the White House or, you know, stepping down as Congress people. There's a large number of open seats this year. I mean, this is not my, this is more your area than mine, but but you could argue that that you do the job the way that you're used to doing it until it feels weird and then you stop doing it. I might be right. I, it, I just, I, I would have thought, I would have thought watching Donald Trump that more people would look at him and say, whatever I think about the guy, it's not my tribe. Like, I just, I can't get on board. The way he's acting is just too nuts for me. Now, I recognize negative partisanship plays a big role here. And, and a lot of people sort of do feel that way. But at the same time, I sure don't like Chuck Schumer or Nancy Pelosi or Hillary Clinton, whoever it might be. So I, I recognize that there is a, a kind of like an opposite magnetic force happening here. And that that is holding things in place that if it were just a yes or no on Donald Trump, um, the, the situation might be more fluid. But even so, I think we have seen less just normal change in politics. And it just makes me think that the structure we have, it's more stable even than I thought it was. And I thought it was pretty stable by this point. But if something, if a personality as disruptive as Donald Trump cannot change more of it, then I literally don't know what can. So, but I mean, going back to the main, the main like principle of the book, the power of winning is very strong. The idea that you know, we could expect people whose job it is to compete and win to just stop playing or to let the other side win, right? That's, that goes against everything that our two-party competition does or well, but is. The question is, could it make, and this I think goes back to some of the, the social justice cleavage that we're talking about. What I would have thought, and I do think you've seen this with some people, is it changes their idea of who their group is. I totally agree with you. As long as you say, this is my group, then they can't do that. But, you know, something I definitely think you're seeing in political arguments, is people finding new coalitions. I, I do think I do think some of what I would call like the elite never Trumpers. I think something that's interesting about the never Trumpers is that they are not just never Trump. Over time, the more strident of them have just become more liberal. They are saying more mean things about the Republican tax plan where if that same tax plan had come out under Mitt Romney, I do not think they would have had a problem with it. Or they are more appalled by the Obamacare process, or they are less enthused about Donald Trump moving the embassy to Jerusalem. And to me, it's always this very interesting thing that when people begin to drift away from their group, it's not like they just say, well, I disagree on this topic. All of a sudden, the whole package of the other side becomes a little more appealing for all these like group identity reasons you talk about. You can just hear it more sympathetically. When you read the articles, your your brain is not looking for what's wrong with them and maybe is even beginning to look at what's right. But that process is happening among, as far as I can tell, a vanishingly small number of people. Now, you know, other people don't want to come out, but but even so, we look to be headed 
even if you take a pretty optimistic view for Democrats, to a midterm wave that is within big but a historically normal kind of counter reaction, something you saw in 2010 and something you saw in 2006 and, and on and on, not to something that's like American politics will never be the same. And I think I would have thought, I agree with you that people are not going to say, well, but some just let the Republicans lose a couple of them. But I thought you might see people say, you know, either I'm going to get on board with this new group or I want Evan McMullen to win or, you know, whatever it might be. That that would have been. I, I think that that lack of new group formation is interesting to me. So this is where I think that we're too soon to look for mm-hmm. that. I think the really instructive story for this is the, is the Southern conservative Democrats in the 1960s, because if you really look at them, it took about a generation for the, the Southern conservative Democrats to become Republicans, right? The people who were Democrats then, when the Civil Rights Act happened, were, were, were promising to themselves that they would never, ever be a Republican under any circumstances whatsoever. And maybe over their lifespan, they eventually identified as independent. And then their children went from independent to Republican. But party ID is sticky. It's really hard to get rid of. It's not just, you know, this is what I spend a lot of my career arguing about. It's not just a list of policy positions. It's an identity. And it's something that is, you know, you associate with your parents and your friends and your college experience. It's a part of who you are and how you grew up. And for some people, they think of it in a much more practical way. And so they can say, you know what, doesn't match me anymore. I'm done. But that's a vanishingly small number of people that can do that in two years. It takes a long time. So what do you think, when you then explain that story of that changeover that took a generation, what happened? Like, what indicators are you watching for now? Or was it just that you had cohort replacement as people got older and aged, that's a euphemism, aged out of the political system? (laughs) Into the afterlife. (laughs) Into the afterlife. Um, what, how do you how do you explain what happened there? What what happens when you do see those transitions occur? So in the mass electorate level, I think you're right that people started thinking this doesn't feel like my group of people, right? But that's that's just sort of a little uncomfortable thing in the back of your head unless you're paying a huge amount of attention to politics. But there's a sense of like, why do they do that? I don't like that that they did this the civil rights. I don't like that, but. God forbid I'm a Republican. That's absolutely not going to happen. And and across the entire South, no one could imagine being a Republican. And so gradually you start maybe seeing your representatives voting with Republicans every once in a while, and you're kind of okay with it, depending on what the policy is. And your representatives still haven't changed their party. And maybe a couple of your representatives start changing their party, but that takes 20 or 30 years itself. I mean, we had, you know, we had Southern, conservative Southern Democrats in Congress until what, like 15, 20 years ago? Mm-hmm. So what you see is a group-based change, but it, but it's like converting from one religion to another. Just very few people do it. And it takes something big. And you have to feel like you're ready to leave behind a huge portion of yourself and find a new portion of yourself and of other people that are like you. That's hard. I feel like they have to find all the cues. You know, they have to find their people. They have to figure out what their positions are. They have to figure out who they're rooting for in every election. They have to figure out how to vote again. You know, I mean, it's it changes your patterns and your habits to change an identity. So I'm going to move to asking you just a couple rapid fire questions. Your answers can be long or short as you want just to, to, to close us out here. What is a finding here? 
could be in your book, just in political science generally, that you think deserves more attention, a finding that structures the way you think about this that you think most people don't know? Ideology is an identity. Being liberal or conservative means something to you that's be, that goes beyond having issue positions that are liberal or conservative. And what is it? What does it mean? So the identity itself, I have, I have a new paper out on this. The identity itself, how strongly you identify as liberal or conservative, makes you hate the other side really much more powerfully than any set of issue positions that you hold. And even if you hold issue positions that are largely consistent with the opposite group, you still hate, you know, if you're liberals, you hate conservatives. If you're conservative, you hate liberals. It doesn't matter what your policy opinions are. What's something that the group you broadly belong to believes, whatever group that may be, political scientists, I don't know your politics, you can choose, that you think is maybe wrong? Hmm. That the group I belong to believes? Yeah, what is it? What is a, within things that you think of as your group? Uh-huh. And as you say, we all have many groups and many identities. What's something that, that you question, that, that you think, I, I think probably a lot of the audience, probably me, are broadly in your, yeah. are not too far from you. What, what's something that you look around and you think, you know, uh, we don't have that one quite right. So I'm, this is not political science. This is just in general yeah. that we can change our party system, that we can have, that we mm-hmm. can all of a sudden invent a new system for American politics. There's a lot of idealism out there and I like that idealism and it makes sense to me that we should, right? That we should have a different party system. I actually don't think that's, I don't think it's correct and I don't think it's feasible. Um, I think it's kind of a pie in the sky, ridiculous thing that I hear people sort of, I hear liberals saying a lot, we need to change the whole system. I just don't think that's happening. How much, I think there's actually a question I'm going to get after this podcast, if, and so I want to ask it here. How much do you think money is involved in all this polarization? Do you think people overweight or underweight the role of money in the level of polarization we have now? I think I used to give it a lot more credit than I, than I do now. Until 2016, I think I was really worried about it. And uh, after the 2016 campaign, I'm not as worried about it anymore. We got a little view into, you know, the kind of democratization of information that we saw in the 2016 election, whether or not that's propaganda coming from another country or, you know, we don't know necessarily where all of it came from. But we do know that individual people had a lot more power spreading messages in this last election. I don't think that's going to change. And, you know, the money is for messaging. The money is for getting messages to people's faces and ears and and mailboxes, you know, and if you don't need mailboxes then or television ads, then, I, you know, I'm not sure what, what are you going to spend the money on? And finally, what are three books you've read that have influenced you on this or other topics that you'd recommend to the audience? So the, the nerdy book, the academic book is uh, called Ideology in America by Ellis, uh, Chris Ellis and Jim Stimson from 2012. And they kind of explain this whole idea of having an identity that's ideological versus issue positions. It explains it better than anything I've ever seen. And I assign it to every single class that I teach. Um, and then I'm a big fan of fiction. So I like to read. I feel like reading fiction can help us kind of get into the mindset of other people in a way that we are completely incapable of doing in our regular average life. Even having a conversation with another person that's very different from you, you can't really get into a mindset or their mindset unless you kind of live their life a little bit. So there's a book, a novel called Homegoing by, uh, now I pronounced her name correctly, Ya Jesse, I think, G-Y-E-S-I, but I think it's pronounced Jesse. That is like a, it's an epic story of two sisters born in Ghana and one stays in Ghana and one is is shipped off to America to be a slave and their family lineage over generations and generations. And it really 
first of all, it's just a beautiful and compelling story, but it also really explains what like what structural racism is, what people are talking about when they talk about that um, in a really concrete way and that, that I personally never really got until I read this book. And then the other one, which is just really fun, actually, this was on Obama's list of, of top books. Um, that's not why I read it. It's called The Power by, no- by Naomi Alderman. And it's it's about like a future world, like 5,000 years in the future, where women have all of a sudden generated the power to uh, electrocute people out of their fingers. <laughs> and it and then it, it explains kind of what society, how society changes once that can once that happens, when essentially when women are more physically powerful than men. Huh. And all of the changes that happen, it makes it so clear that like physical strength infects everything, including things that are not about physical strength, right? Like power is ultimately can boil down to physical strength in in so many different directions that you wouldn't otherwise think of it. as. Oh, that's really interesting. I'm definitely going to read that. It's really fun. Liliana Mason, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Liliana Mason. And thank you to all of you for being here both today and in general. I give thanks for you. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. I am grateful if you have a moment, uh, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or send the show to a friend. Thank you to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing the Ezra Klein Show's Vox Media Podcast Network production. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G Podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts.